Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. In February 2020, Convention of State's President Mark Meckler gave testimony before a South Carolina Legislative Committee. Mr. Chairman, honorable members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify here today. This is something that I have the unique privilege of doing all over the country. In the last three years, I've been in 48 state legislatures around the country. I've met hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of state legislators all across the country of both parties. And there's something that I have to start with that was not in my prepared remarks, but I have to say it in response to a lot of what I've heard here today, especially from Ms. Martin. I want to start by quoting one of my most favorite presidents, certainly in modern American history, Ronald Reagan. And he was a supporter, by the way, of the second clause of Article 5 of using state amending conventions. He spoke publicly about that. And he said, the trouble with our opponents is not that they're ignorant, it's just that they know so much that isn't so. And I think that suits perfectly what we heard from Ms. Martin today. I I want to address this phrase that she used repeatedly. She said that this movement is full of constitutionally illiterate persons of insidious views. I'm pretty thick-skinned. I've been called a lot worse than that on Facebook probably today, so I can handle that. But I'm going to defend people that aren't going to get up here and be able to speak for themselves today. She's referring to over 33,000 grassroots in this state, in South Carolina, hundreds, maybe in excess of 1,000 in your own district, calling them constitutionally illiterate persons of insidious values. I think this is one of the fundamental problems with our politics in the United States of America today. I will tell you that there are people in this room that oppose what we're doing. I do not consider them constitutionally illiterate, nor people of insidious values. I think they're people who love their country. I think they're like my neighbors and my friends and my parents. And I think it does a grave disservice to our system of politics. I think it's tearing our society apart. And I think it's bad decorum in a committee to refer to 33,000 fellow citizens. By the way, to be clear, also referring to almost 50 members of this august house who have co-sponsored this resolution, who are apparently constitutionally illiterate persons of insidious values. Also referring, to be clear, to 22 members of your august senate, many of whom I've met and have the privilege to know, who are here serving for the right reasons, because they love South Carolina because they love their neighbors and their friends. They love God, they love their country. These are not persons of constitutional, constitutionally illiterate persons of insidious values. There are others here today that can't speak for themselves that I have to defend. She repeatedly attacked Mark Levin, one of the greatest living American patriots, one of the greatest constitutional scholars in modern American history. He's written seven best-selling books on various legal subjects, including the Supreme Court itself, including Article 5, probably the greatest, one of the greatest living scholars on Article 5 itself, attacked as a constitutionally illiterate person of insidious values. Mark Levin, by the way, who was the chief of staff for Attorney General Edwin Meese under Ronald Reagan. She attacked, by extension, Chuck Cooper, President Reagan's personal constitutional attorney who serves on our legal advisory board, 
who stands for this, who is apparently now, who, by the way, has litigated for the NRA on behalf of the NRA for 30 years, Second Amendment cases at the Supreme Court, apparently now a constitutionally illiterate person of insidious values. She attacked Professor Randy Barnett, the greatest libertarian constitutional scholar in America, president of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution, as a constitutionally illiterate person of insidious views. She attacked Robbie George, the greatest conservative constitutional professor in the United States of America at Princeton. All of these people and many more, over 4.3 million people in the United States of America that support this movement today. She has called them, and, and our opponents call them, constitutionally illiterate persons of insidious views. She said moral and wise people haven't been in charge of anything in this country in the last hundred years. Unlike Ms. Martin, I have had the opportunity to meet you and hundreds of people like you in state legislatures all over the country. And I will tell you, when I go to Washington, D.C., there might be a little bit more I agree with Ms. Martin there. I don't like Washington, D.C. very much. I'm a regular guy. I'm a country lawyer myself. And I don't like the way things are run in Washington, D.C. But I can tell you, having traveled to 48 states around this country and the legislatures in most of them, that's where I meet the Americans who inspire me the most. That's where I meet people who actually come to a legislature to serve, who actually step away from their businesses and family and sacrifice finance and time and energy. I'm talking members of both parties all across this country. And to say that moral and wise people haven't been in charge of anything in this country in the last hundred years, it is an insult to all of those legislators serving in state legislatures all across this country. And I cannot continue my remarks without noting that she is absolutely intolerably incorrect, and it's inappropriate. I want to move into some of the specific issues that, that were discussed today and address some of them specifically. One, let's start with this because this is where she started, and it is an outrage. It should be an outrage if you're a person of faith. Comparing the Ten Commandments to the Constitution and saying that if we don't like the Ten Commandments, would we just amend them? I, with all due respect, there is no comparison between the Ten Commandments and the United States Constitution. One, a document given to us directly by our Lord God, and one, a man-made document. No doubt a great document. No doubt written by men who were inspired by God. But it is not the same, and there is no comparison to be made between the Ten Commandments. Nobody suggests amending the Ten Commandments. This is, again, an outrageous, over-the-top statement. I want to discuss the 1787 convention. Again, so much slander was, was thrown about today. It's just outrageous. We all have our view of the 1787 convention, and it was indeed filled with great and moral men. By the way, there were some there not so great and not so moral, too. <laughs> we're human beings, right? And, and the founders understood human nature, I think, far better than a lot of us do today. They understood that we were flawed. There were people there with personal interests. There were people there with personal egos. And in 1787, at that convention, the, there is an allegation that is made by Ms. Martin and others that that was a runaway convention, that they ignored their instructions. We all know our history far better than that. We revere these men who were in convention because at the time of convention, at that time in history, putting it in context, as Mr. Menjez said, in 1787, the concept of honor was the highest concept in American society. In fact, that concept was held in such high esteem that if you accused another person of being disreputable or dishonest, they could challenge you to a duel and they could kill you without legal consequence. 
Those were men of honor. In fact, we know that happened. Burr and Hamilton. Those were men of honor to, to whom honor was the highest value. The idea that those men gathered in convention, I want you to think about this. George Washington sitting as the president of convention, Madison, Adams, and they all got there and just said, you know, I know the people in the States told us to do something, but what the hell? Let's just do whatever we want. It is an outrageous slander against the founders. And I've heard it over and over, and I will tell you, I will spend the rest of my life attempting to reverse that slander against the great founders of this country. Bob Menjes mentioned the Law Review article that Michael Ferris wrote about the 1787 convention. If you want to know definitively it wasn't a runaway, you could do it. You could read the commissions that each commissioner carried with them that gave them full authority. Clearly, Ms. Martin has not read those commissions, doesn't understand those commissions. Again, it's not that, it's not that they're ignorant, it's just that they know so much that is wrong. I've heard repeatedly Ms. Martin say that my organization, our organization, the organization representing 4.3 million people across this country, made up the term the Convention of States. It is incredible that any lawyer could say such a thing in good faith. I will grant her good faith, but it is incredible that she could say it in good faith. It demonstrates a basic lack of research and understanding. In fact, the US Supreme Court itself applied the label in Smith versus Union Bank in 1831. Amazing how we made it up, apparently, in 2013. And by the way, it was the label used by the Commonwealth of Virginia in 1788 when it made the first application for a convention of states. So again, I have to correct the record. It is outrageous to make these things up or to not know these things. For someone to come up and represent themselves as a constitutional expert, they don't know that the Supreme Court has been using the term Convention of States since 1831. They don't know that Virginia used it in 1788. It is either lazy to the point of being egregious or dishonest. In, by the way, in a soon-to-be-published law review article by Professor Robert Nadelson, the number one expert on Article 5 in the country, he chronicles and demonstrates the consistent use of that term by the founding era state officials. It was used, was used over and over and over. Ms. Martin claims that Congress can use its powers under the Necessary and Proper Clause to control a convention. Again, this demonstrates just a very basic ignorance about court precedence on Article 5. The federal courts have explicitly rejected this idea. You can go look at Idaho versus Freeman. Look, any of us who are lawyers in this room, you can go to Lexis, type in Idaho versus Freeman, you're gonna find all this stuff. So this is why it's so outrageous to me that people make these allegations. And by the way, just I want you to imagine what our nation would look like if the necessary and proper clause could be used to control a convention. The founders specifically said that they wanted to do a convention so the states would have some power. And then apparently, according to our opponents, the founders were also so stupid that they gave Congress, the people who the founders were trying to control, power over that convention. It makes absolutely no sense from a common sense basis. Our opponents claim that uh, amendments used or proposed to impose additional clarity on limitations of federal power somehow do the reverse and grant it power it doesn't have. She referred over and over to Mark Levin's book, like I don't need to de defend Mark Levin, a much greater constitutional scholar than I am, frankly, a much better man than I am, contributed much more to our society. He can defend himself, but I'm gonna tell you, this shows, again, a basic misunderstanding of constitutional principle. 
In the Constitution, the way that power is granted in every single case, grants of power are made explicitly. Congress shall have the power. They use the permissive verb, each house may determine the rules, or by implying it by reason of a future imperative, each house shall be the judge of elections. Amendments that increase federal power follow the same practice. It's elementary that while exceptions can confirm stated grants, in the absence of granting language, they don't add to existing grants. That's just not even legally sensical. Any lawyer can tell you this. I'll give you an example. The Fourth Amendment doesn't create federal power over reasonable searches and the ability to engage in reasonable searches and seizures. That authority rests on enumerated powers. They don't get their power from the, how do you get power from a limitation? It absolutely makes no sense. Opponents have claimed an Article V convention to propose amendments is dangerous and that the commissioners will go rogue and they're gonna rip up the Constitution, they're gonna dance on the pieces, they're gonna have a big bonfire. And then they're gonna replace it with some crazy North American Union Constitution. <laughs> Apparently put together, and this has been said by Ms. Martin here today, partially, she said it in Missouri when she testified, apparently put together by President George Bush, uh, Heidi Cruz, the President of Mexico, and the Prime Minister of Canada meeting at George Bush's, Bush's ranch in Crawford. This was news to me, but apparently this is what this movement is all about. Look, I, I, the only thing that I can say that I'm very glad about is at least the aliens are not involved. <laughs> this is an outrageous slander, again, for 4.3 million people, scholars all over the country, hundreds and hundreds of co-sponsors across the country, and, and it has to be cleared up. Like, this is something that we do know. Throughout American history, there have been literally dozens of interstate conventions. There were 11 conventions before 1787. There was the 1787 convention, which we have definitively proven was not a runaway, and there have been over 30 interstate conventions since. No one can point to a single example ever in all of American history of a runaway convention. This is fear-mongering and cowardice at its worst. I will close with this. Those of us who oppose this and those of us who are in favor see the same problem in Washington, D.C. Parties, across party lines, we see the same problem in Washington, D.C. Sometimes we think it's worse if we're on the left and there's a president and a Congress of the right or vice versa. But all of us are tired of it. Today, 72% of Americans say the federal government is too big and does too much. A friend of mine coined the phrase that reality is an acquired taste. I'm a connoisseur of reality. We live in a time when the Supreme Court does what it does, when Congress does what it does, and we have to deal with those things as a reality. It would be phenomenal if Article I, Section 8 could somehow just limit the scope, power, and jurisdiction of the federal government. It would be phenomenal. I've yet seen anybody propose a realistic plan for how to get them to do that. Serving as senior advisors to our organization, Senator Tom Coburn, who has the highest overall conservative rating in modern American history, and Senator Jim DeMinn, I think he's number two, both serve there in both houses. I know a lot of you know Jim DeMint. And they both came away saying, Washington, D.C. will never fix itself. And that's why they got involved in the Convention of States project. There has got to be a solution to this problem because 20 years, 25 years from now, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren are gonna look back and they're either gonna say, thank God you did what it took to save the Republic, 
or tell me what it was like when people were free in America. The Supreme Court is out of control. We all know that. If people talk about the Constitution, they're saying we should just enforce the Constitution. By the way, you could buy a Constitution from the government publishing office. Most of you will never have seen this. On the spine, it says United States Constitution. It's 2012 edition, last one printed. By the way, just a little irony, you can't buy them anymore. There's no budget to print them, but they apparently can print money. I, don't, I haven't figured that one out. It's 2,738 pages as of 2012. It's over 3,000 pages today. All those Commerce Clause cases that Mr. Menjes discussed, they're all in here. We all love that Constitution that was given to us by the founders with the Bill of Rights attached. We love that Constitution. What the Supreme Court has done to this Constitution is an outrage. And the remedy that the founders proposed for us was Article 5. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we have the courage of the founders? What they did was difficult and dangerous. We're not asked to do what they did. But the question is, will we live up to the legacy that left us? And I would encourage you to stand tall and to do this for your kids and your grandkids and all of posterity, just like the founders did. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Members, questions? Mr. Remus has a question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Meckler, for your kind words at the beginning. I feel like I'm one of those honest legislators, and yes, I'm here for the right reasons. So um, with that, what legally keeps the convention limited to the topics it's supposed to be considering the amendments for, like the big three that we've talked about? Sure. So there are two ways. Uh, there's actually a multitude of ways, but let's start at the beginning. Every state, and it takes 34 states to call a convention, has to pass the same resolution. In other words, your legislature is considering the same language, the same operative language. It's going to require 31 other legislatures to pass. So the legislatures themselves have all agreed in advance to what the subject matter of the convention will be. That is what I describe as the law of convention. Each commissioner that you appoint, the legislature appoints the commissioners, will carry something called a commission. It's always been done. It'll probably be digital this time, not paper. But they'll carry a commission which lays out the limitations of their authority, and the only authority you can grant them is the authority that you got from your legislature, which is the three subject matter areas we're discussing here. When those delegates get to convention, well, let me back up one step. You're going to choose delegates as a legislature that you trust. This is one of the most interesting things to me about this idea of a runaway convention. You're not choosing people out of the internet at random. <laughs> You are in charge of your legislature, and your houses are going to get together, and the governor's not involved in this, and decide who you want to send to represent you. I hope that you'll choose people you trust. Now, I want you to think about human nature. You're going to choose some people you trust. I can tell you if any of you were chosen, I can tell you what you would think. This is what I would think. You would think, this is a weighty responsibility. This is something fairly amazing. We've never done a convention before in American history. I've now been given a commission. I've been told what I'm allowed to do and not do. And I'm going to go to that convention, and I'm going to exercise my duty faithfully. It is hard for me to imagine anybody that you would trust going to that convention and saying, yee-haw, I'm free to do whatever I want now. Their reputation is on the line. The legislature maintains control over them while they're at convention. Uh, we, we have real-time streaming. It's going to be on C-SPAN. You have the ability to text with your delegation. They're going to be there. They're not going to leave their instructions. They might 
maybe they call back to you and say, there's something else I think we ought to do. Can we do it? But the idea belies human nature, that people that you choose, that you trust, that take this seriously, are going to go do whatever they want. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they get there. Maybe California has crazy outsized influence, right? And they start telling these people to do crazy stuff. They are your agents. I'm going to speak to the lawyers in the room and the business people. You've all appointed agents. You have an agent that binds you to insurance policies. You can only be bound to the authority that you give your agent. If your agent does something that you have not given them authority, to, that is basic law of agency, by the way, not just in the United States, but in every country in the Western world. For all of modern jurisprudential history, if you tell an agent you can only do these three, three things, if you tell your insurance agent you want him to bind you to a million-dollar liability policy and he comes back and says, Representative, I got you a $10 million policy. It's going to cost you five times as much, but what a deal. Too bad, so sad, you're bound. You're not bound. That action is null and void. When an agent exceeds their authority, according to common law principles of agency law, in existence forever, all the way back to Blackstone's, Agents are bound and limited by the authority granted to them. Let's assume I'm wrong. Agent goes crazy. Your legislature, the, whoever you send, does something you don't want them to do. You retain authority over them. You could recall them. You could withdraw their authority at any time. If you reach out to the secretary and the parliamentarian of that convention, and you say, this person no longer has authority to speak for South Carolina, they're done. You'll have alternates at the convention. Mr. Chairman, I'm going to slide over here. You asked a question about what happens, you know, you've seen people recalled and the vote still goes on. That is true, but you're going to have alternative delegates at that convention, so it's really not a problem. You will, you will maintain your authority at that convention at all times. At the end of the, the day, the ultimate check and balance is what the founders put in place. And they said it's going to take 38 states, three quarters of states to ratify anything. You know how high that bar is? There is no three-quarters of anything anywhere else in our entire system of governance. It is so hard to reach that bar. I hear all the time from the fear mongers, we're going to lose our Second Amendment. By the way, my son's a Marine, my mom's a cop. I'm not fighting to lose our Second Amendment. Chuck Cooper from the NRA serves on my legal advisory board. He spent his whole life defending the Second Amendment. It's outrageous that people would say this. So, it, let's say, just for, for craziness sake, which is what it is, somehow out of this convention, 31 states control both houses by Republicans right now, but somehow you get an amendment to repeal the Second Amendment. Unlike most people in this room, I've been in 48 states in the last three years. In 15 states, you have the legal right to carry a handgun in the state legislature. It takes only 13 states to stop any amendment from becoming part of the Constitution. I can tell you this. If I bring that amendment into this legislature, the Carolinas, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, Arkansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Wyoming, Alaska, Texas, I'm just telling you, if you bring that amendment into any of those legislatures, way more than 13 of them, I hope you're packing your handgun with you. <laughs> so it's just out, these are outrageous things that people say. They're just, they're intended to create fear and discord. You cannot get an amendment ratified by 38, 38 states that you and I would not like. In fact, it's going to have to be down the middle. It's not going to be radically conservative. It can't be radically liberal. It simply cannot be. And how do I know it cannot be? It's not because I'm that smart. 
I've had the opportunity to be on radio and television all across the country. Mark Levin Show, Sean Hannity, Glenn Beck, Ben Shapiro. I've asked this question on the air to millions of people. I've given out my personal email address, mmeckler at COS Action. Send it to me. Send me the amendment that you wouldn't like that can be ratified by 38 states. I put that out to millions of people. I've received exactly zero emails in response. It cannot be done. This language was drafted by the best conservative constitutional scholars in the United States of America. Go to our website and, and look at the Jefferson Statement. The finest legal constitutional scholars in America put their stamp on this and said it's safe and that it cannot run away. Mr. Elliott's recognized for a question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Meckler, thank you. Just for clarification, if the amendments uh, out of the Article 5 Convention at the end of the day, came out just like your, that you would propose. The process is the same. 38 states have to approve that. That's correct. If hypothetically, situation as others have described, and something other than that comes out, what is the process for um, ratification? The same. 38 states would have to ratify. Okay. Um, just for our edification, what states recently uh, have adopted this similar uh, or same uh, uh, bill or uh, resolution? Uh, I think the last three states would be Mississippi, Utah, and Arkansas. Thank you. Tweet, um, okay, Ms. Tweeler is next, and then I'll come to you, ma'am. Thank you. Ms. Tweeler. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Mackler. Keep having to pull this closer. Let me pull this up. I keep trying to go between my paper and my us country lawyers struggle with that, I know. Yeah, hey, yeah, I just learned how to do this. I'm just kidding. A little while back. <laughs> it's like the etch a sketch, that's right. Uh, so I'm, I'm just trying to envision when we talk about the, the balanced budget portion of it, and, and I'm not using that term in, to describe one bill versus the other, just yes, as a general description. In your view, is the is the convention there to decide? Okay, we need to put. In, for instance, our we have a balanced budget provision in our constitution, thankfully, um, and I think I got it somewhere in the in in my notes here. Um, but it doesn't say how we, as a general assembly, have to do it. It just says in every budget year it has to balance. Um, is that? Are the delegates to the convention going to have to decide how to balance it or just to put a provision in that it will have to be balanced, if my well, question makes sense? That does make sense. And I think the answer is that in every national uh, balanced budget amendment proposal I've seen, there, there are mechanisms in there in the balanced budget amendment. I think this is a, this is a very important distinction here. One of the big reasons that in our application, in the resolution you're looking at for the Convention of States resolution, that there are not, that's not only for a balanced budget amendment, but it's also for structure and jurisdictional limits and uh, power limits on the federal government is because I think it is dangerous to impose a balanced budget amendment without those limits. What you're getting at is how, how do we know they just don't tax us to death or cut everything that that we don't that we don't necessarily want cut. How how do we know these things? And the answer is, and I believe this because I've talked to balanced budget folks, people way smarter than me from all over the country. They will impose restrictions on the federal government. For I'll give you a for example. It won't necessarily be in there, but here's a for example. You could tie taxation 
the level of taxation to population plus inflation. That's one I've heard proposed. The states have a bunch of different ways. Some states don't have any. Uh, the majority of states, by the way, have some form of balanced budget imposed on them, and they're a lot better off for it. So I think there would be a series of restrictions imposed on the federal government at the same time. Uh, it, and the, the reason I ask, and I guess I'll let the cat out of the bag, not everybody on the committee is a conservative Republican. Yes, sir. Um, but... Um, That's a good thing, I but, say, uh, as a conservative. Stop the press. Yeah, yeah, alert. <laughs> Two, two of us slipped in, right? Back. Um, but, you know, fiscal ruin's not in anybody's best interest, uh, is my take. The country going bankrupt is not, regardless of where, what standpoint you're from, that's a disaster. Um, but, but that was one question I had. And, and certainly, I think I'm willing to run the risk that some things that I don't like happen and I think probably folks on the other side are willing to run this risk that, and I'm just talking about in the, in the fiscal right. part of this. Right. Um, I, I don't necessarily insist that things just go the way I want them. I'm willing to take the risk that some things won't if the, if the end is achieved, that we do balance the budget. I don't know if every state has a balanced budget, but I think most of us do. Most do. Um, so why is the national government not? Anyway, and I'm going to I'm going to quit. I'm, I, I don't want to monopolize. One more question I have: Is there one thing you mentioned? It might have been um, in response to someone else's question, but is there any ability to modify this resolution, or does it have to be passed just exactly as it's presented? The the preamble can be modified. The operative language has to be passed as submitted or you fail to do what's called aggregate. And that means it doesn't match up with the other states. And we know this is important because there have been over 400 applications for convention in American history. They're sitting on file with Congress. Until we get to that requisite two-thirds number of 34 that are the same language, we won't have a convention. But they have to be just that? Um, that I mean, just I would say topic. virtually identical. I mean, I'm probably if you move a comma around or an and or an I don't, yeah. you know, it's got to be virtually identical or they will not aggregate. Okay. Thank you. Ms. Calhoun's recognized for a question. Mr. Chairman, um, welcome to South Carolina, thank and you, thank you for your presentation. She's bringing a copy of H3125 to you. Oftentimes, issues are extremely big, but then they insert these little words like may and or. And I just need for you to explain one section for me, please. Yes, ma'am. And that would be under section two, item six. There's a, there's a may in there and there's an or. Yes, ma'am. And I'm just, can you clarify sure. that for me? Yeah, this is uh, actually straight out of article five of the United States Constitution. Is it really? Yes, it is. With the or and the may. Yeah, as far as I know. If that's if it's different, then you're you're catching me. Um, okay. The the there are two rules that Congress has in a calling mm -hmm. a convention of states. One is, uh, the, they're actually both what are called ministerial, according to legalese, ministerial duties. In other words, when two thirds of states call for a convention, request a convention by resolution, then Congress is required to call that convention. Call is a term of art. That term of art means name the time and place for convention. We know this because this is what's happened over the, you know, the entire history of our country. So, and then 
Now, on the or, Congress has the choice. This is the second thing that Congress gets to do. They get to choose the method of ratification. And the method of ratification is either by state legislature uh, or by state ratifying conventions. The state ratifying convention format is decided by the state legislature. So it would be in true Federalist fashion, however every state decides to set up their state ratifying convention. Thank you. That's it. I understand that was in the Constitution, but there are things that are open in that section of the Constitution that I was just... Um, you mean the method of ratification? Method of ratification, yes. ma'am. Yes. And I would, just to clarify, I wouldn't say it's open. Congress has two choices in proposing which method of ratification. In American history, I think Mr. Menges dealt with this extensively. Uh, they've always chosen state legislative ratification with the exception of the repeal of the 19th Amendment prohibition. Mr. Elliott's recognized. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Meckler, you, you mentioned that for aggregation purposes uh, that they need to be identical to count. Would that apply? I'm looking at there's three sections of the bill that you have in, or the resolution you have in front of you. Does that, for aggregation purposes, do you believe that applies for aggregation purposes? Would that apply only to section two and not three? Generally speaking, there is, a, there is an exception, which I don't actually like or appreciate. There is a state that has passed a resolution uh, removing the term limits portion of the resolution, however, specifically stating that they intend for it to aggregate with the other resolutions. And I think that is legally defensible. Uh, we've had constitutional attorneys look at that. I think it's the wrong approach. And I do think it creates uncertainty anytime you have something like that. I don't appreciate that, but there is a state that has done that. But if I'm section three deals with um, basically uh, delegate qualifications and, and, and such like that. Would that, that does not have to. That, I, I thought you meant the three operative uh, sections. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, on the delegate limitation, that does not have to be the same. Gotcha. That, because that's actually not legally part of your application or your call for. That, that was my question. And I, I did. I did. I knew this, but I happened to notice. I think it's instructive, though. In in, just a comment. Maybe you can. Cut, maybe you can opine on it. In section two, paragraph five, the last sentence says. For folks, who are con for folks who are concerned about that the Article 5 Convention might try to do something that would change the Bill of Rights, if this passed in South Carolina, that the application would be void as if it never existed if any provision attempted to change the Bill of Rights. That is correct. And, and not all states have put that in, but many states are starting to insert that now. You know, what happens is as states go along, they're looking for more and more comfort. And I understand that. And so they're inserting provisions like this. The, the three that have to be the same that, that are important are the very first three in Section 1A, uh, you know, going through or, or laying out what the particular areas are that the convention is to address. Those have to be the same. I would point out with Mr. Elliott's question that oftentimes we major in the minors here, and so I could see the House and the Senate arguing over the section, subsection two selection of delegates more than I could the substance of the request. And I, I think that's why that's a valid question <laughs> yeah. for us. If we end up saying, okay, you can pick three and we'll pick three or whatever, we would want to, to, to mess up the whole circumstance. That wouldn't mess it up. And this is, by the way, a reason that I generally – 
prefer that the legislature passes the resolution making the call first and then prepares their Delegate Selection Act and Delegate Limitation Act second because, as you said, there's a tendency to major in the minors. There's a lot of stuff to fight about in there and, and a lot of reasonable differences of opinion in, in those and in how delegates get selected. I actually love that. That's called federalism. We like and, that. And just to clear it up, when you keep referring to three, I'm looking at section one, subsection B. Basically, it's fiscal restraints limit power and jurisdiction and term limits. Is that a fair assessment of that's what That's it. Thank you category? for clarifying. That is where that's found in this joint resolution. Right. Thank you, sir. Any further questions? Real, real quick, yes, Mr. Chairman, and we, and we can speak more about this later, but what are your, do you believe that the states have adequately defended Article 6 um, utilizing the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, and do you believe there's any, any hope? Do you, do you put any kind of... Um, uh, do you believe that's an option? So no, that's a couple of questions. No, I don't believe they've adequately defended their rights. And I think there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. I would start in 1913 with the 17th Amendment. It really gutted state power. You, know, you guys used to appoint your, your senators. Yeah. And what that meant is you had control over one of the houses of the United States Congress, which you no longer have. So I think that sort of, that's where we really began to neuter the states. I also think in regard to the 10th Amendment, the problem that we have today with the 10th Amendment is not the 10th Amendment, it's the way that the federal courts, including the Supreme Court, has interpreted the 10th Amendment, largely depriving states of standing to sue under the, which honestly, I just think it's madness. Uh, but that's where we find ourselves. One of the things that I would like to see as part of a convention is I would like to see states granted automatic standing to sue the federal government under the 10th Amendment. So no, I don't think the states have stood up and done what they need to do, but I also think there are reasons. I think the courts have undermined the states. The last one I want to add, which is kind of an interesting one, is that there are some states that prefer federal government regulation over state regulation. And these tend to be the states that are more heavily regulated, states like California and New Jersey and New York. There's a term I've heard constitutional scholars use. It's a form of what is called cartelized federalism. So if you all here in South Carolina have created an economy that's very competitive and you're luring business away from those states that are heavily regulated, those states will lobby the federal government to impose regulations at the standard that their states have. Working in a cartel, essentially against what I would refer to as real state autonomy. So that's another problem that we're dealing yeah. with. Thank you. Thank I will you. share. I've, I've been reading. Uh, I shared last week. I've read the Constitution more than I have since I was in law school. But I was looking. There was a Commerce Clause case, uh, U.S. versus Darby Lumber, about the Fair Labor Standards Act. And the court stated that the Tenth Amendment is but a truism and was not considered to be an independent limitation of congressional power. That is terrifying. We need but to that fix that. But that is part. That's that's a battle for another day. But when the Supreme Court can decide. Whatever the Constitution, it, it's terrifying regardless what we Agreed. propose. I want to be respectful to, to everyone's time that's here, too. Thank you for your time, Thank sir. Thank you, we committee, appreciate chairman. It. Appreciate it. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.